You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. Today, we have three very special guests with us on this episode. Christina Moon, retired FDNY Captain Patrick Reynolds, and retired FDNY Lieutenant Terrence Jordan. Three individuals who are forever connected through firefighter William Moon II, or Billy as everyone called him, and his commitment to saving lives. Tragically, on December 12, 2022, Christina's husband, Billy, suffered a fatal injury while preparing for a training drill at his Brooklyn firehouse. Days later, when it became clear that the 21-year veteran of the department would not survive his injuries, Billy's family carried out his wishes to donate his organs to help others. But Billy's story didn't end that day. It continues on. Moon joined the department a year after the attacks on September 11, 2001, and after his accident, he gave his lungs to retired lieutenant and 9-11 first responder Terrence Jordan. Billy's lungs breathed life into Jordan and have become part of Terry's life and legacy. Retired Captain Patrick Reynolds made it through 31 years with the FDNY, served at Ground Zero for months, but could not beat his genetic disease without the selfless act of his FDNY brother. Billy's liver was successfully transplanted into Reynolds just before Christmas. In total, five organs from Moon were transplanted into five desperate recipients. In the wake of unthinkable tragedy, we're here today to celebrate the life of Billy Moon and share his extraordinary acts of heroism even after death. Christina, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And I'd just like to extend our condolences to you and your family. Thank you. We'd love to hear about Billy. Tell us about him, what he's like as a husband, as a father. You know, I kind of describe him as a big personality because he was a big personality. He was also 6'4". So there was no hiding him when he walked into a room. You know, he said hi to everybody when he walked in or people always came up to him and said hi. You could hear him across the room, especially when he was laughing. You know, and he had a lot of strong beliefs, and if he believed something, he was going to let you know about it. And I think whether it was through firematic service or just through personal beliefs like the organ donation, he was really great about letting people know. You know, as far as a husband and a father, we talked all the time. I think text messaging was one of the best things because with his schedule, we were able to just regularly talk to each other, even if he was working during the day or if it was a night chore. We had open lines of communication, or if it was to find out what time the kids had to be fed or go to school, you know, we had those conversations too. And he was a really involved father. He coached the sports. One of his favorite things to coach was my son's hockey team. He was at as many events as he could be at. You know, we were very fortunate. He had some really great 24 partners over the years that he was home for almost every holiday. You know, there was always a piece of him there, and he always wanted to make sure. We always worked on the schedule. Around what we were doing, he would work his schedule to be it as much as possible. So it was really great. That's awesome. Billy was a dedicated firefighter and servant in Rescue 2. That's no easy task either. I'm sure that was probably a, a goal of his for some time. It was. Talk a little bit about that because I know he's really involved in the job and his commitment to the job and public service and helping others. When he decided he wanted to go to rescue, he, you know, put the feelers out there and he went to visit and, you know, he met with uh, Captain Flaherty and he, he kept at it, you know, because yeah. it's a big process and it's a, a wait. And he did. He didn't, he didn't stop. He always made himself visible and known and that he still wanted to go. He was very fortunate because he really liked being at 133. He loved yeah. those guys and 275. He was there for a long time. He was there for a long time. They were really yeah. great relationships. Family, yeah. So he felt like if it didn't happen, he accepted it because he was happy to retire there. <laughs> but he was still working towards, you know, getting yeah. to rescue too. And he was a volunteer fireman for 28 years. Yeah. So it was kind of just in his blood. He said he was either going to be a fireman or a cop. Fireman was the first pick, and yeah. you know, he lucked out. He landed in the right place. He did. He definitely found his calling. He said he never worked a day in his life. 
they're not in studio with us today. Our other two guests, Terrence Jordan and Pat Reynolds, we're going to introduce them real quick. But we always ask for a quick bio when you came on, where you started, where you worked, and in this case, when you retired. So, Terrence, maybe you go first. Hey, guys. Uh, I came in 7-11-81. I started out in uh, Entry 225 in East New York, Brooklyn. I went across the floor after three years. And then at 12 years, I got promoted to fire marshal. And I was assigned to Brooklyn base. I was a fire marshal for three years. I got promoted to lieutenant and I got assigned to 122 truck in Park Slope. And from there, I did three years and I transferred to SOC. And I went through the whole SOC process like like Billy did, you know, all the special training and all. After about a year of bouncing, I wound up uh, getting assigned to Marine 9 in uh, Staten Island. So I had the best of both worlds. I, uh, I was on a boat and then uh, doing mutuals and rescue, all the rescues and squads and hazmat. It was great. Sounds like a good program. Pat, how about yourself? Yeah, I was appointed to the FDNY in November of 1984 and assigned Engine 82 in the Bronx. Subsequently, I transferred across the Florida Ladder 31. In January of 1996, I was promoted to lieutenant and assigned to Division 7 and thereafter to Engine 93 in Washington Heights. November 2003, I was promoted to captain and assigned to Division 14 in Queens. Assignment to Ladder 138 was in 2006. A vacancy arose in the UFOA Executive Board in 2007 in the captain's representative position. I decided to seek that position and was elected to two three-year terms. I held two Executive Board positions, first Recording Secretary and then Vice President. At the conclusion of the second term, I was detailed to the Special Operations Command Headquarters on Roosevelt Island as the administrative captain. I remained in that position until my retirement in February of 2016. All right, and you continued on working for the Uniformed Firefighters Officer Association, correct? I did. I was the retiree liaison for about six and a half years. The main purpose was uh, to field calls from retirees and also to prepare our active members uh, for retirement. Uh, everyone that retires from the fire department leaves claw marks in the floor of the firehouse. <laughs> but at some point, you got to go. Yeah, and you help them guide through the process. That's super valuable. Oh, and I've been in education for 19 years, guys, in case you're wondering. Yeah, 19. <laughs> All right, well, Christine, you've been so vocal about the organ donation. I've learned so much in the past few weeks just preparing for this. It's a and, yeah, it's a lot. And uh, it's changed my perspective, certainly. I've heard you say to the probies at the FDNY Academy that during such a sad and difficult time, and when you finally knew Billy wouldn't recover from his fall, you felt peace of mind that he, he made those hard decisions for you. Can you please talk about that and how that helped prepare you? What wishes did he express? One of the things I said to the probies was, I remember I was in my dining room and he came over and he was you know, in the living room. It's like 10, 12 feet difference. And he's like, are you an organ donor? I'm like, I mean, I would, but I don't think it's on my license. And he looked at me and with that big personality, he's like, why not? He almost felt like people should have to opt out of being an organ donor. And uh, I was like, I guess I just never checked the box. Because like we said before, when you're like 16, 17 at the DMV, you're not thinking about your organs for other yeah. people. Even if you're renewing your license. Right. Hey, I'm, I'm looking to get out of there. I can't yeah. think of about, you know. No. The waits are still long. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we kind of talked about it a little bit. And so I was like, I would do it. I just didn't yeah. change it. So I, it changed not long after that. Which I think is a lot of people's story. Yeah. It's, you know, all of a sudden someone yeah. gives you a reason. Yeah. It's uncomfortable also to think about it. Yeah, it is. This was before we got married. We talked about it. I probably changed the box and I changed my name on my license. 
you know, and had to make the trip to yeah, DMV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the same time, you know, I talk about his personality. Our house was very light. He would definitely always find like a joke or something to talk about things. And we played around a lot at the house. Yeah. You know, we had fun with the kids. But, you know, we would sometimes talk about that in a joking way. Yeah. You know, like, you're going to make sure, right? Like, this is going to happen. And so we, it was voiced more than once purposely to know that about one another. And, you know, if we knew people that suffered tragedies, it kind of came up in conversation again and yeah. confirmed everything. Yeah, I think that's how most people are introduced to it. You mm-hmm. know? And hopefully we'll serve to help. I know that's what you're doing. You're out there. I saw your pieces on the news. and It's been weird. Yeah. It's about getting the message it out. It is. That's what it, it's and really it is, is a message. And I almost feel like it kind of started a little bit of a movement. It's bringing a lot more yeah. awareness. And I really appreciate that because, you know, when you have people like this that get to benefit from it, it makes it worth it. it makes yeah. those conversations oh, I, I can't imagine. worth yeah, it in the end. I want to turn to Terrence and Pat for a moment. And you guys are both 9-11 responders. I think it speaks volumes to Billy's character that he joined the department shortly after the horrific attacks on the Trade Center and signed up to serve, knowing all the risks involved. Terry, you've been suffering from a World Trade Center-related illness. Can you share what you've been living with in, in terms of your illness and where you are at and how the lung transplant came about? Well, it all started on 9/11. Initially, I called uh, I called a medical division shortly after 9/11, and I I spoke with Dr. Pazan, and I told him I was having difficulty uh, at times with my breathing, which I never had before, and he wanted me to come in. I said, Doc, I I can't come in right now. We got too much, you know, working down at 9/11. Everybody was needed, so he said, Well, just come in when you get a chance when things slow down. So I did that, and uh, he sent me for testing. I got the testing. After the testing was complete, I went back in, and he was going over the test results, and he said, you know, Terry, that's it. You'll never go to another fire, which I totally floored me because I never expected to hear that. So I just I had my time in. I just retired. And since then, I had multiple lung issues, including COPD, emphysema, asthma, and more. And over the years, it progressed at a slow rate. I started out, I wasn't on oxygen. Then all of a sudden I was on oxygen when I was exercising. Then all of a sudden I was on oxygen 24 seven, which I'd been on for the last, I'd say 12 years or so. And, you know, it just continually got worse at a slow rate. And Dr. Bazant kept me going all that time. If I got a lung lung infection, he got me through it, you know, with medications and all. And at the end of September, all of a sudden, I like went off a cliff. My breathing was horrible. It got so bad at one point, if I got off the couch, even at six liters per minute on the uh, oxygen concentrator, I would go into the low 70s in my oxygen saturation, which if you hit 88 and below, it's a big warning. So the last couple of months, I was basically tied to my couch. I couldn't get up. And the week I went in the hospital, I didn't even know I was going in the hospital at that point. But that week I was having such a tough time. I turned around to my wife and I said, honey, I don't know. I I don't know if I'm going to make this, you know, and I never, ever said anything like that. I, I'm, I'm always Mr. Positive, but that's how, that's how bad it got. Uh, I was getting tested to go on the transplant list, and I had a couple of tests left to complete, and I was going in on Friday to NYU, 
And Dr. Bazant called me the night before and he said, Terry, bring a bag. So when I got to the hospital, they admitted me for respiratory distress. And I was having a real tough time. They finished the tests. I got on the list. You know, it was everything was happening so fast, my head was spinning. And then all of a sudden, over the weekend, you know, I just thought something was going on. The day before my operation, Dr. Prezant told me that we're going to have the operation. And it was from a firefighter. He told me all the particulars. You know, they tested everything. I was a match. And then the next day I went in, which was great news. It was like a Christmas miracle because I was at, I was probably within days or weeks of passing, you know, at that point. And Christina and Billy gave me the gift of life. It's like I, I got a second chance and I'm very grateful. And Christina, I want to thank you again and tell you, Teresa and I love you again. <laughs> Same been an incredible story and they saved my life incredible it's amazing the uh the immediacy of an organ transplant i i've seeing both of them i mean yeah. it's unbelievable i've met people in passing that have said like they look like totally different people to who they knew right before christmas when they weren't feeling well i mean they look so healthy you would never know yeah either one of them had such illness that they were on the brink of not making it. And then you think about their immediate family. You know, I, I went down, you know, trying to learn about this for the podcast. And it's a rabbit hole. It's a rabbit hole. And, you know, there's just one that stood out for me. It was a young mother who had a genetic disease, and she needed a liver. Not from any lifestyle. It was just they, they couldn't really figure it out. She, you know, at the last minute, she got one, but she lived. And think of this, the children and the family that's affected by that, like how much good can be done. Yeah. If you really think about that, it's hard not to just sign. Right. It's like, give me the dotted line. And, yeah. You Where know. do I sign? Yeah. No, it's been um, very wonderful to see and like hear the stories. Pat, I understand your liver transplant was needed due to a genetic disease. What has been your health journey? Talk to us about it. What happened uh, when you see the news that a transplant was finally going to happen? Well, I was diagnosed with a genetic marker for alpha-1 in early 2016. And in the fall of 2021, I began to experience the symptoms of what was determined to be decompensated liver disease, essentially end-stage liver disease. I was directed to Mount Sinai's Liver Institute and the staff assessed that the only cure would be a liver transplant. The reality of the organ donation system is there is more demand than supply. The likelihood of receiving a liver organ and being healthy enough to survive the operation is evident in the fact that many people die awaiting an organ. Although the news was devastating, the outlook for a living donor partial transplant was promising. Several family members were assessed but were not deemed suitable donors. My wife Bridget and I sought the assistance of the UFOA and the UFA to make a public outreach to the membership of both unions representing fire officers and firefighters. I will never know the exact number of people that contacted the Living Donor Program at Mount Sinai, but I understood it to be significant numbers of potential candidates, and that is so humbling and overwhelming. I received a call on December 16th from a close friend that I may be receiving a liver donation from William Moon. I was aware of his injury, but I was taken aback by the potential to receive his liver. I was unaware of the directed organ donation being an option. In addition to several other aspects of the donation program were yet unanswered. All I knew that the blood type was a match. I told Bridget the news later that evening and we both understood 
that this was subject to many variables and might not even happen. Over the weekend, we did not receive any news and we tried not to speculate too much or get our hopes up and we kept this news to ourselves. On December 19th, around 4 p.m., the call came from Mount Sinai that we should make our way into the hospital. We turned out like a first two company and we arrived at the hospital for 6 As you p.m. should. In advance of the next day operation. And uh, as Terry, I'll reiterate Terry's words, uh, there'll never be a way to ever pay this back. Hopefully we can pay it forward by educating people about organ donation. And the piece about the dozens and dozens of members that were willing to undergo an operation and uh, donate a partial liver to me is also an overwhelming uh, emotion that will always be with me. It's a direct donation I didn't know about either. So what was interesting about it is that, you know, that it's able to happen because honestly, especially the lungs, the lungs can't, what I'm learning is lungs can't travel. So they really, you need to have somebody within an immediate area so it really can go from the OR to the OR. Like, so one of the things I said to the probies was location matters. You know, the heart went from OR to OR. So if there wasn't a direct donation, those organs may not actually have ever even been able to be donated. So it really works out that people were able to benefit from it. It it seems that's why the registries are local too. Yes. Yeah. Live on New York is the local um, that, and they're amazing to deal with. Lenny, who's the CEO over there is fantastic. It's such a hard process to go through. But, you know, I keep comparing it to, you know, a medical drama that we all like to watch on TV. You know, there's no magic medevac that's going to take the organ and, like, fly it across the country on dry ice. It doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. You need to be, there needs to be a locality to it. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure that's why the registries are set up that way. Yeah. yeah I just want to interject the, the morning of my surgery. I actually, the doctor that was going to pick up uh, the organ came into my room. And he was, and I think that's where the, the young doctors start off in the, uh, liver donation teams, one guy is going to go down and, and or gal is going to pick up uh, the organ. And I said, okay, well, don't take the subway. And uh, <laughs> yeah. the fact that it was... Definitely not. I mean, you're talking about, you know, only a couple of miles difference between NYU and uh, Mount Sinai, but it was rather touching to have met him. And he felt, and I guess they feel the need to say, look, I'm on the way for your organ. Because as you said, some organs can, can travel and others cannot. Yeah, it, it personalizes it, and it's important because everyone's human in the process. And, you know, for Billy, you know, when the time came, he actually had, they call it an honor walk, mm. and we walked through NYU, and everyone lined the hallways. It's very emotional, but it's, it's very touching to see everybody. They recognize the importance of the person. Yeah. You know, the kidneys went to Pennsylvania. Did I read there were five people directly with the organs? Yeah, five people total. So the heart, who I did hear from the heart recipient, I got a letter from them, and the kids and I wrote back. He lives in New Jersey, and then the two kidneys are in Pennsylvania, but I don't know. I haven't heard from those families yet. So the recipient can reach out first, and it's documented that I'm willing to, you know, hear from them if they want to. Pat, you said you knew it was a firefighter. Terrence, did you know? No, I I had heard once I went into hospital on Friday, a buddy of mine from that I, I worked with years ago, he had driven me and he was very upset. Apparently he was a, he was a friend of Billy's. He was very upset. We were in the cafeteria getting ready to go up and he told me and he was, he was all broken up. And uh, from that point on, we thought maybe that might be a possibility, but I didn't know 
for sure until Monday, the day before the surgery. You know, there was a lot of speculation and uh, it was amazing how it worked out that I was in such need at that moment and everything just timed out the way it did. It was incredible. Did you know, Pat? Somebody as a friend of mine uh, alerted me to this fact, but I, I was aware of Billy being the donor. I wanted to respect the Moon's family privacy and being conscious of the morning they would be experiencing. We shared the news with our adult children and asked them to keep this information confidential. Uh, that's amazing. I want to acknowledge you know, how complicated this experience can be, the emotions everyone is navigating at this time. Christina, how do you feel about Billy's donation and meeting his organ transplant recipients? You know, it's, it brings comfort to the situation. I mean, it's, it's very emotional. I'm holding back the tears, and I'll probably cry on the ride home. It just it puts a face to the names, and it completely gives it even more of that human perspective of they're not just going for just some operation. Like, these are people, and they have a life now because of him. And, yeah. you know, he really spent so much time. He was never like a – wasn't a selfish person. You know, it wasn't about making himself so much better. It was like, what could he do to help – the fire service or help others in general. So just the fact that he got to keep helping people, it just the way the pieces fell. And I remember when they did his dignified transfer from Brooklyn to NYU, you know, we were following behind the ambulance and I just got this feeling of it's going to be okay because this is happening. It brought some peace to the situation because it was, it, it's horrible for someone to have to go through it. And the whole week it was a blur. Everything was a blur. But just to sit there and have that feeling of knowing that at least other people are going to be okay because of this. You know, no matter what, he wasn't coming back. So the fact that they could benefit made it better. An amazing legacy. Yeah, it is his legacy. Are there things about the organ donation you want to share, especially in the first responder community? And it's really something we should all consider, specifically for the reason that we have a very dangerous job. Yeah, you know, one of the things, like, the facts that I gave when I spoke to the probies is only three in a thousand people will actually die in a way that they could donate. That's not a lot of people. And it depends if their family is willing. Because in New York State, where we don't have a high registration rate, but we do have a good, like, it's like 80% of families are willing to donate. So if that's not there, you know, there's so many people that could be benefiting from it. With the three in 1,000 people, like you said before, you know, having a dangerous job, I've said to people before, unfortunately, first responders have the type of career in which they may be one of those three because of what they do. So it's even more important for them to be there. And I ended up at the Fire Academy because I know about the bone marrow donations and everything that happened for every class. It's like, well, this is something that should be mentioned at every single class. And they listened and they invited me and that's when I went to speak. Yeah. I know another thing you're passionate about is the infinite like cycle. Uh, and you know, some of my research that I learned, they talk about recycling. <laughs> Yeah, so how they frame it. An organ recipient can be an organ donor. And I didn't realize that. It's almost like, you know, it's just literally a constant life cycle. Like even talking to Terry the other day, he's like, I'm an organ donor. So even though he received lungs, he could still donate if he is in the place in which he could. So you don't, you don't think about that. So it's not a one and done scenario. So it really does create that infinite life cycle. Yeah, well, there's a living donations as well. Well, living donations, you know, it's that's the area that I haven't learned a lot about yet. Yeah. But just having those opportunities for people, the fact that so many people stepped up for Pat as a living donor to be able to do it, it's really cool. And I, one of the things I described was like the word moon. You know, you see the two O's, it kind of made me think of the infinity symbol, which kind of created that whole infinite life cycle in my mind. I think it's clear that Billy's legacy is impactful and it's going to be far-reaching. I hope so. What do you each think his legacy is, Terrence? 
Billy's legacy is incredible because starting from the conversation he had with Christina, I never had that conversation. I, and I'm a pretty thorough guy. And I, I don't think a lot of people have that conversation where we should. And the podcast here, the news articles that, that we've done, it opens people's eyes. And I would implore everybody in the uh, first responder community, my brother and sister firefighters, EMS workers, and any civilians, please consider it. And if you're married or you have a partner, discuss it with them because it should be discussed. It's very important that somebody knows in the family that you're a donor as well. Billy's legacy is living on through myself and four other people. I'm walking today with Billy for the rest of my life. And uh, that's part of his legacy. So I think it's incredible. And I pray that everybody just considers doing it and becomes an organ donor. Look, it works out like it did with Billy. If 100 people sign up to donate, that's 500 lives saved. You know, it's it's incredible. Yeah, I'm happy to be part of this. And I, Christina, I'll help you out in any way I can with this new cause. I'm with you 100%. Thank you. 100%. That's a Billy thing for us. <laughs> <laughs> All in. Pat? Yeah, Billy's legacy and the Italia Moons family's uh, legacy will be the inspiration they have provided to millions of people. Even if only one person becomes an organ donor, it's a success. And Billy's work on earth was not done. He continues to live on in me and Terry and others. And we will be carrying on his legacy. As uh, Terry just said, every day he's out and about. And same for me, Billy is walking alongside us. Since I've been doing this, you know, I feel like hard conversations, it's almost like I'm going to coin hard conversations, even though it's a phrase that's been around for a long time. Because <laughs> those are those things that people don't think about. Nobody wants to have hard, uncomfortable conversations with each other, you know. And a lot of people have come up to me, they've showed me their license, or I've seen pictures on social media of people with their license with the heart on it. And so I feel like it's, it's getting out there. But my fun fact of the day is the Grammy song of the year was Bonnie Raitt's Just Like That. And right. it's about organ donation, because mm-hmm. she saw a segment about an organ donation, and that's what her song was about. So I thought Great it was song. very convenient and funny how that happened, that that's the song of the year. We could talk about some numbers, because I'm mm-hmm. sure you know the same ones I do. Like 17 people die every day awaiting yeah. yep. uh, a transplant. Yeah. And there are 100,000 people on, on a list. One person could affect, from organs, eight, up to eight people. Mm-hmm. And 75 more with tissue donations and everything. Yeah. So it's really miraculous that yeah. that could happen from one person. Yeah. And hopefully, hey, we'll get the message out, you know. To go through what we're going through in our lives right now, you know, with my family and the kids, and this has kind of helped. It kind of redefines your purpose a little bit. And I think that having the opportunities like this to talk about it, to meet people, it's really helping us in our healing, which is important. I think if people hear that message and understand that, they're more likely to advocate for themselves and other people. Yeah. Guys, before we let you go, how are you feeling? I know you're in isolation, correct? Yeah, I'm in isolation for three to six months, and hopefully it's more on the three-month side. But I still have to be careful even when the isolation is up. So I stay in my house most of the time. I just have to be careful. I can't hug and kiss my grandkids, which probably affects me the most. But they understand. Pat? Well, in terms of like adding anything, I want to acknowledge the Alpha One organization for the support they have provided my family. Alpha One is described as not being a rare disease, but one that is rarely diagnosed. 
due to the demographic affected by Alpha-1, I have no doubt, other members and children of FDAUI may be carriers or have the gene type I have. Confidential genetic testing is available to that organization. And I want to reiterate my admiration my family has for Billy, Christina, and your family. The commitment you have made to further the cause of organ donation and awareness will continue to save lives. Amazing. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you guys taking time to sit with us today. We're all going to be following along. Your continued recovery, certainly rooting for you on the sidelines. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Christina. Thanks again, guys, for speaking with us, and especially Christina. Thanks for taking the time sitting with us today. Thanks again for having me. All right. Uh, Again, listeners, you can visit liveonny.org. That's liveonny.org for more information and to sign up as an organ donor. If you reside outside the New York area, we encourage you to go to organdonor.gov. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.